I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and open up to the book of Esther. And if you weren't with us last week or maybe you're still trying to figure out how to navigate your Bible well, um, you're going to want to make your way through the beginning stages of the Old Testament. You're going to move through Ezra, then Nehemiah, and then Esther's right there. And if you, you hit Job, you've gone just a little bit too far, so back yourself up. And we are in Ezra, or excuse me, Esther chapter 2 this afternoon. And the chapter that we're looking at is a chapter that is filled with darkness. I was reminded of a, a part of the, the book, The Lord of the Rings, where after leaving the crossroads with the, the memory of the sun just dipping beneath the smoke of Mordor, it's still fresh within their minds, Frodo and Sam are they're brought face to face with the haunted tower of Minas Morgul. And here's what they say. They say this about this scene, all was dark about it, earth and sky, but it was lit with light. The city that they're looking at is the city of the, the Ringwraiths, and if you know anything about the Lord of the Rings, you know that these are the most uh, terrible of all the servants of Sauron, the Dark Lord. They were once men, but they were seduced by the greatness of this Dark Lord and seduced by the rings of power that were given to them that inex- exa- excuse me, in- inexor- I'm just going to skip that word. <laughs> that bound them to the ruling ring, the ring of power. These ring wraiths, above all, have been brought by the ring and bound in the darkness. And then they say this, looking at the land of Mordor, they say, in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. In the midst of their treacherous journey, They are oftentimes moving not away from darkness, but into darkness. And it's a great reminder, even as we look at this chapter, that the world that we live in is often a world that's filled with much darkness. We saw this last week as we began to look at the empire of this world, and it's not often filled with with light and hope and joy. It's broken. This is, after all, as the Scriptures say, the domain of darkness. Satan himself is the prince of darkness. But sometimes, every once in a while, a little bit of light peeks in through the darkness. And in chapter 1, we were introduced to this great king who presented himself as the king of kings. But in reality, he was weak. He was insecure, he was a frail man, easily manipulated, and he is not the grand king that he pretends to be. And as we look at this king, we are reminded that this is in many ways a picture of mankind apart from God. Man lives in the darkness because of their attempt to play God. In their rebellion against God, they seek to be God and find themselves distanced from God. This king, King Ahasuerus, was manipulated by his friends to banish his wife 
His wife Vashti, the queen of Persia, who refused to come into his presence when she was beckoned by the drunk king in the midst of a feast, a party, to come and prance around like an object in front of his friends and those in power. That the world can often be a cruel place. And this chapter reminds us that it's not just a cruel place out there. Oftentimes, this world can be a cruel place for God's people. We see in this chapter, as we are introduced to two more characters, that life as God's people is not always easy. The darkness does seem pervasive. It seems all-encompassing. And we see, as we pay close attention in this chapter, to the way the narrator develops some ideas. He gives details to show how God is at work even in the darkness, that yes, things look tragic, things look impossibly difficult, but even in the midst of the darkness, there's a little bit of light that's beginning to peek through. This chapter, it's filled with, with a mess. There's pain, there's sorrow, there's sin, there's brokenness. There is darkness everywhere you look in this chapter. And it's helpful because we live in such a dark world. Sometimes we're actually a part of the darkness. We play a part in what it is trying to accomplish in this world, sometimes knowingly, sometimes not. Nevertheless, God in His grace does not discard us. But instead, He delivers us even from ourselves, and, and, and He actually deploys us for His purposes, even knowing that God's plan will eventually be brought to light, does not completely diminish the darkness. But in this darkness, we will see the light peeking through. I want to look specifically uh, in three ways at the darkness of our world, and I want to look at it through the lens of what we often experience. Because as we look at Esther in this passage, as we're introduced to this young orphan girl who would become queen of Persia, we have to in one part imagine the feelings and the emotions of what she must have been experiencing And we do get a glimpse of that as we understand the context of this passage and the darkness that we often miss. The darkness of this world, first, we experience heartlessness. Verses 1 through 4, we can read them together. It says this, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. And what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Four years have passed since Vashti has been banished. The king had gone through some humiliating defeats by the hands of the Greeks, 
And it seems that he's had some time now in his humiliation to sit and to ponder his actions and the reality of his situation. And as he looks around, he realizes there is no queen. He's confused. What have I done? What am I going to do? How can a king not have a queen? She's not coming back. It's decreed by law. What are we going to do? Now, we should be very cautious, I think, of making decisions when we're angry. If you recall the situation, he was filled, as the text tells us in verse 1, with anger at what Vashti had done and her rebellion, her resistance, her refusal to bow the knee to him to do exactly what he wanted to do. And in the rashness of his anger and the counsel of fools, he goes out and he makes a ridiculous decision. It is just as we look at this and kind of draw some principles out of it, it's a great reminder that we should never make decisions when we're angry. The conversations that we're having when we are angry, I mean, we make bad decisions and say foolish things when we're angry. We are in many ways no different from this king. But again, his foolish counselors come to his aid and they want to make him happy. And so what do they do? They present another foolish plan. Again, this omnipotent king is entirely reliant on others to tell him what to do. It's a sign, again, of his weakness, of his frailty, of his indecisiveness. This man is not a man of power. He is weak, and he is in many ways pathetic. So his senior officials, they they told him to dismiss Vashti, and now his household staff tell him to institute a search for a new first lady. Now, In case you're feeling sorry for this guy, which you shouldn't, it is unlikely that the king has been sleeping alone during this interval. He has had his fair share of women that he uses up and kicks to the curb, but he needs a a new queen, a first lady to keep up appearances. This is the kingly thing to do. But make no mistake about it, this is all about him. This world system that we live in is utterly heartless. It so often cares nothing for us. So here is this great idea. We're going to throw a beauty pageant of sorts, a Miss Persian Empire competition. But in case you missed it, you know, oftentimes we read this story as if it's some kind of fairy tale. I need you to consider the reality of what's actually going on here. This is a heartless practice. It is cold and calculated. It is abusive by nature. There is no choice for these young girls. If you're pretty, you're entered into the competition. And by the way, it is not ultimately a beauty competition. It is a sex competition. This is an appalling, appalling abuse of power. The pretty young women are are taken away from the men who might have hoped to marry them, away from fathers who are trying to protect them. They're incarcerated in the harem of the most powerful man in the world. And as we look at this, we can go, I can't believe it. This is despicable. Thank goodness I don't live back then. Let me remind you, that the same kind of abuses of power, the same kind of wickedness and darkness exists today. 
It exists around the world. It exists in our country. Sometimes it exists in our own backyard, and sadly, sometimes even in our own homes. I'll never forget going to Nepal, one of the first times I was there. And Nepal is one of the poorest countries in the world. And I'll never forget being told that, that parents in the villages, because the, the money is, like, people don't have money. People are broke. They can't, they can't scrape enough food together to feed their families. And, and so oftentimes you go into these remote villages in Nepal, and this is where the sex traffickers go because they can buy the young girls, young girls, two, three, four years old, off of their parents just simply to provide food for the week, and parents are willing to do it. These young girls are sold into the sex trafficking, a life of abuse and tragedy and heartbreak and pain and sorrow. Or you think of Boko Haram or the Taliban and the way they abuse people. Or you think of sex trafficking in the West. I mean, we just saw the, the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, right, and Jeffrey Epstein who are trafficking young girls to people in positions of power. And if that's too much for you to think about, I just want you to consider the billion-dollar pornography industry that specializes in taking the weak and the vulnerable, objectifying them, sell, stealing them, and selling them into slavery. This is the kind of world that Esther is living in. It's abusive, it's unjust, it's wicked, it's evil, it's sinful, it is dark, and this is our world too. I mean, over thousands of years, let's be honest, not a whole lot has changed. It's worth saying too that although this system is heartless and exploitive, it is not necessarily sexist. I'm sure it was that, but, but it, it's more than that. The, the historian, the historian Herodotus, he reports that 500 boys, so if you have 500 girls swept away into this sex competition, 500 boys were taken from Babylonia and Assyria each year and castrated for the service in the Persian court. Everyone's sexuality, not only women's, was at the king's disposal. And commentator Karen Jobes, she, she even comments that one might argue that the young women actually got the better deal. For most of us, and certainly for the people of God, living in the world empire means at some level experiencing this heartlessness. We inhabit a world where powerful people treat other people as existing merely for their benefit, for their pleasure, and are willing to strip away all of their dignity, all human rights. We can often experience this kind of heartlessness in this world. Some of you have known it personally. Some have simply seen it from afar. But make no mistake about it, this is a part of the darkness of this world. Secondly, in the darkness of the world, we experience homelessness. Look at verse 5 through 7. We're now introduced to two of the main individuals in this story. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. 
He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. We're introduced first to Mordecai. He is in the the citadel in Susa, which suggests that actually Mordecai had a position of prominence in this kingdom. He serves as some kind of civil servant in this world empire under King Ahasuerus. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and interestingly, we get some details about him. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, but he has a genealogy which goes all the way back to Kish, who is the father of King Saul, the first king in Israel. This connection with Saul is going to become important as the story begins to unfold, but for the moment, I want you to just note that that he is a Jew. He's part of the chosen people of God. This is important to the storyline because the entirety of this book is a reminder that God is faithful to keep His promises. The Jews in those days were the old covenant people of God. But when you hear the word Jew, as we read through this story and we pull it apart together, you need to understand that the designation is religious. It's about ultimately their relationship with God and how that relationship made them distinct amongst the people in the world. So it's not primarily an ethnic distinction that's being made here. This is not anti-Semitism, so to speak. This is a religious reality Now, the New Testament makes it clear that in many ways, the heirs of the old covenant people of God, the Jews, are now the new covenant people of God. We saw this in the book of Romans. Both Jew and Gentile who are spiritually saved and brought into this new reality, the church of Jesus Christ, we are one new man in Christ. And all of the promises that were once given to the the people of God, the Jews in the Old Testament, are now ours in Christ as well. And the reason I tell you that is because it becomes helpful for our ability to identify with this story. So we can read this not just simply as, oh, look, uh, that's about the Jewish people. Those are the chosen people of God. No, we can read this as our spiritual heritage because we now are the New Testament, New Covenant people of God. We are linked to these people by our faith in Christ. And as we read that, this is why when you read the Old Testament, you can relate to what's going on because there are massive parallels that the biblical authors are drawing to your attention. They want you to see you're the the people of God. And look, look at the people of God of old. Look at what they had to go through. Look at their experiences. And look how now you can learn from them, see what they went through, see how God was faithful to them. The same reality is true for you, the people of God today. One of his ancestors was carried off into exile in the time of Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, in 597 B.C. In fact, uh, exile was the defining feature of Mordecai's position. So this passage is wanting something to leap to the surface in your mind. It's wanting to remind you that that Mordecai and Esther, they're actually exiles. They're, They're not in their homeland. They're Jewish people, but they're not in the promised land. 
We know historically that the people of God were booted out of the promised land because of their rebellion against God, their idolatry, their false worship. They sinned against God, and God promised that He would kick them out of the land. And so here we have Mordecai and Esther. And verse 6 makes it clear. Here's how it literally reads in the, the original, if I could kind of frame it out for you. It says this. It says that his ancestors had been exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles who had been exiled with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar exiled. You get the point? As a second or third generation exile, he would thus have known nothing other than life in Persia under the empire. Exile defined his existence. By rights, he does not belong. This is what the the author wants you to know. By rights, he does not belong to this world empire. He is an outsider, and, and as a result of that, he is marginalized. He is weak, and he is vulnerable, as is his young cousin Esther, whom we meet in verse 7. Now, she's introduced here by her Persian name, Esther. This is her Babylonian name, and Mordecai also is his Babylonian name. This would not be uncommon for exiles who live in the Babylonian or Assyrian empire. They would have been given new names. Think Daniel and his three friends. They too were given new names. But what you need to see is that this, in some sense, is pointing to the dualism that now characterizes their existence on earth. They're they're torn or caught between two worlds. They're the people of God. They are made for another world, and yet here they are. They're living in the midst of this evil, dark, wicked world empire. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. She is a Hebrew living in Persia. And this unique tension is going to be something that we want to pay attention to as we move through the book of Esther. This book teaches us a whole lot about how we are to navigate life in this world when we are really not of this world. It's no mistake that, that Peter, if you read through 1 Peter, I know we studied through it a number of years ago now, but when you read through 1 Peter, Peter begins his letter by identifying himself as an apostle, and then he quickly identifies his readers, and here's what he says about them, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. That is a spiritual identity marker that he is placing upon them. He wants them to realize that this is not their home. They, they are exiles like the people of old. And that's why when you move through First Peter, he describes the believer as a sojourner, as a stranger, as an alien. It's over and over and over again. And the reason is, is because we are inclined to get incredibly comfortable in this world, are we not? We begin to assimilate into this world. We begin to become influenced by this world. I mean, this world begins to have a greater grip on our hearts and direct our lives than the world that is to come, the world that we have been called into by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to always have this, this idea of identity before us, and here's why, because identity drives activity, okay? Identity drives activity. 
It should have driven Mordecai and Esther. They should have constantly been thinking of themselves as exiles. But I think what we see in this story is that actually, actually, in some ways, they had forgotten that they were exiles. After all, they could have left and gone back to the promised land by now. They were allowed to, but guess what? They didn't. They're still here. How do you live in this tension? That's what this book is going to help us wrestle through. It's going to remind us perpetually that we are God's people, that we are not in the promised land yet. We are not in our true home. But even as we sojourn our way through the darkness of this world, our God is still with us. Esther does have one good thing going for her. Here's the glimmer of light. Her looks. She has a pretty face and an attractive figure. That's what that means. And the author here is setting us up for the rest of the story. He's setting us up to see, look, look, there's something going on here. The king wants young, beautiful, attractive people. Well, guess what? Here's the perfect candidate. And I think we understand that these visible attributes are, well, they're, if we're honest with ourselves, they're what the empire of this world values most, isn't it? Our world loves what's on the outside. Our world is obsessed with the external. But that's, that's really, in many ways, in contrast to what God is looking for, right? God is, is not obsessed with the external. He, he, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for only cleaning the outside of the cup when inside, you know, they're filthy and unclean. God is looking at the heart. There's nothing wrong with external beauty, but it's important to understand that outer beauty is not nearly as important as inner beauty. But it is her beauty in this story that causes her to be taken and brought to the king. Taken, listen, be, be reminded of this. Think about homelessness here. Taken from her home. Taken from her family. She experiences in this world, in many ways, what all God's people experience. She experiences homelessness. There is an ache within us for something more, something different, something beyond this world. Like Esther, we too feel this in the darkness of this world, and sometimes more than others. There are times when we get rocked by circumstances. There are times when we see the assaults on God's people, either close to home or far from home. There are times when God shows us and reminds us and convicts us that this world is not our home, and He's trying to peel our fingers off of the things of this world to set our mind on the things above, not on the things below but oh, it's so hard. It's not just homelessness that we are inclined to experience in the darkness of this world. Look at this. Finally, we experience hopelessness. Verse 8 and 9, the story begins to now rapidly unfold. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. 
And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Lucky Esther. She gets the best place in the harem. But listen, don't miss this, though. This is, in many ways, a glimmer of of hope, even though in this moment, I'm sure for Esther, it didn't feel like hope. This must have felt like torture. This must have been painful. But at the same time, I think God, in giving her favor, God, in allowing her privilege, is showing her, listen, I have not forgot about you in the darkness. The favor is that she has given these women to attend to her. She's given all the cosmetics to bump her up the line to be queen. But look at verse 10. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred. For Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Esther conceals her identity as a Jew. She is hiding who she is. That means that in some ways, she must have actually abandoned her own culture. The distinctiveness of the Jewish people was designed to make them stand out. It's hard to imagine that place in this position under all of the scrutiny that she would have undergone, that that she could somehow hide her identity, the, the food laws and all of the rest days and celebrations and all of those things. There's no way she could have faithfully followed the Word of God. It's even possible that she assimilated into the worship of the Persian gods. We don't know for sure But in a sense, she is becoming Persian so that she is not seen as a Jew. Esther is no Daniel. She's not standing up to the king at this point. She is, for all intents and purposes, assimilating into the culture. Again, it's a powerful reminder, listen, that Esther is not perfect. Oftentimes, we've read this, this like a fairy tale where this young orphan girl who becomes queen can do no wrong. She's the perfect woman to emulate. But as we look at Esther, we need to be reminded that she is a broken individual as well. She's making mistakes. She is actually sometimes becoming part of the darkness. And if you think that she is the hero or Mordecai is the hero of the story, you've actually missed the point of this story. You see, God is the hero of the story. Esther's broken like you and me, which actually makes her relatable. I love how Scripture does not whitewash the heroes, the people that are oftentimes used by God. They're shown with all of their warts and wrinkles, their faults and failures. I mean, Esther, I mean, she probably does things that she regrets. She does things, I'm sure, that she's ashamed of in this story. Perhaps she feels like she has to do these things. It certainly would seem that way. My goal is to survive and I'll do whatever it takes, I'm sure she thought. And keep in mind at this point, Esther has no idea what God is doing. (laughs) The Jews at this point have not been threatened with extermination. 
nobody's put a bounty out on the Jews. She's just kind of going through the motions. This is her daily life, and all of a sudden, she's thrust into this competition, and she has this opportunity to rise up the ranks, and who knows, who knows, maybe, maybe she'll even become queen. Perhaps she feels hopeless, and as a result, she simply takes matters into her own hands. Who cannot, which one of us cannot relate to that? Verse 11 And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. He figures out a way to keep an eye on Esther and to communicate with her. This is going to be, as you know, if you know the story, an important way the story continues to develop. Look at verse 12 through 14. Now, when uh, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus's, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. That's a spa treatment. 12 months. Who needs 12 months? When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. In the harem for the virgins, a girl was beautified. But again, you need to imagine the hopelessness here. This is like being, this is like a lamb being fattened for the slaughter. She's getting beautified for her night with the king. She's queued up for her turn. Every night the king had a new girl. When her turn came, she would choose her outfit, her cosmetics, her perfume. They went through an entire process using oils and perfumes and just, it, they would be saturated, a little like kind of teepee kind of a thing where the, the, the perfume would just soak into the skin. After her night with the king, the girl would be transferred from the virgin's harem to the concubine's harem. This is a sad change of status. Because there she would wait. She would not have another night with the king unless she had pleased the king in bed and he summoned her by name. Would the rest of her life, here's the question she might be asking, would the rest of her life be spent in hopeless seclusion in the harem of the concubines with just the chance of the occasional extra night in the palace until she got too old for that? She could not leave. She could never get married now. No one would be allowed to marry her. Just imagine the hopelessness in this situation. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for another except what Haggai the king's eunuch, or for nothing, excuse me, except for what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. 
And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts and royal generosity. So after this slow build-up, this preparatory period, we watch this beautiful girl walk down the corridors from the virgin's harem to the palace. She's taken to the king. And the camera all of a sudden slows down and zooms in. As we are told, the month and the year in which this happens, much hinges on this one night of immorality. The salvation of the world is going to depend on this strange, ungodly night. But it goes well. She wins favor with the king. She's crowned the queen, celebrations and banquets, but don't be confused. This queen has no power. She is still a pawn. She exists for the pleasure of the king and only at his beck and call. She is in a deeply fragile position and is cloaked in weakness. In many ways, this is not a celebration of light, but a celebration of darkness. But there is in this, as we saw before, a glimmer of hope. And that's always the way it works when we think about the darkness. Sometimes that darkness feels so overwhelming. Sometimes our experiences are so tragic. They're so immensely overwhelming. It's very difficult to make sense of the darkness. But as we've considered this story, I want to try to do that. I want to try to make sense of some of the darkness. So I want to close by giving you simply three, three thoughts by way of application. The first way we make sense of the darkness is this. We need to understand that the darkness of this world is a result of sin. The darkness of this world is a result of sin. And if you don't understand sin, this world will make no sense to you. None. If you don't understand sin, then, then you say something like, listen, if, if, we, if, if we could just educate people, if, if we could fix government, maybe, maybe better politicians and new policies, maybe if we could just kind of change the circumstances, maybe that, then we could all just get along. But listen, that's simply not true. In one sense, that's about as effective as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Because our world is broken. Our world is sinful and it is depraved. Everyone in this story is infected with and affected by sin. No one is immune. Not the king, not his officials, not Esther, not Mordecai. So are you and so am I. And until we recognize, until we recognize the power and presence of sin in this world and in our lives, it won't make sense to us. This world will not be comprehensible. 
We won't see our need for a redeemer. We won't see our need for a savior. We won't see our need for a perfect substitute to take our place. You see, in sin, we are constantly seeking substitutes for God. And in turning to those, we turn away from Him, the source of all life, of all joy, of all satisfaction. But only God provides what He promises. Sin never will. It can't. It's impossible. You cannot be saved unless you see the sin within you and how you have offended a holy God. You can't just look at the brokenness of the world and say, man, it's dark out there. The desperate need for the human condition is to look inwards and see the greatest brokenness is right here in me. I am dark. I am depraved. I am wicked. I am sinful. I've rebelled against a holy God. And my greatest problem is that in my sin, I could never stand in the presence of a holy God. I couldn't survive. I couldn't live not a moment, not a millisecond. If you face God, listen, apart from Jesus, you will spend eternity in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to. That God made a way for you to stand before Him, our holy God, can be made known. We can have access to Him. You, you could become righteous, but not through your own effort or your own works, only through what Christ has done on your behalf. The gospel teaches us that we need a perfect substitute. We need somebody to take away our sin, to to remove us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light. And that's what Jesus came to do. He stepped down into the darkness, the light of the world. He lived that perfect life perfectly obeyed, perfectly righteous. He died in our place so that if we trust in Him, repenting of our sin, we too can be given newness of life and the light of the gospel can be birthed within us. Esther is a small part of the grand story of the Bible, which is ultimately the story of redemption. It's a story about God who redeems His people from a world that has been broken by sin. You see, God is working out His plan to ultimately bring His Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem this world and save His people and one day make all things new. So let me ask you, just personally, have you acknowledged yourself as a sinner and have you called upon the name of the Lord? Today could be the day of your salvation. Cry out. And believer, if you have been living in darkness, today could be the day where you step back out from darkness and back into light. Repentance brings about personal revival and refreshment for the soul. Step into the light and walk in the light as He is in the light. Secondly, The darkness of your past does not stop God from using you. This is what we learn in this story, and even in this chapter, we we see in this story that Esther has a past. She's not the greatest role model for young girls. Like, can you imagine the lessons you pull out of here and try to apply to your, your, your teenage daughter? All right, sweetheart, make yourself as attractive as possible to the powerful men around you. 
Use your body to advance God's kingdom. She was in many ways sinful and ungodly. She's in many ways a model of what not to do. You need to think twice if you plan on putting the slogan, dare to be an Esther, on a t-shirt. She is no Daniel. She probably wished she hadn't done some things. Some of us, listen, have paths that are very dark. And we wonder if God could ever use me. Some of you in here may be even asking, God even save me. I mean, my, my past is so sinful, it's so bad. Could God even save me? Listen, every one of us has a past. You do, I do. But no matter how big of a sinner you have been, God's grace is bigger. We all have a past with darkness in it, with things that we wish we had never done, things that we would be ashamed if people knew. But guess what? It happened, and God was still there. Even if you never knew it, and maybe we're even never fully rejecting Him, God was there in the moments of your darkest sin, in the moments that you would be ashamed to bring into the light. He was there. He knows your past. He knows your deepest, darkest moments and the secrets that you believe no one will ever know. He knows them all. And get this, church, He still loves you. His grace is greater than your greatest sin. He knows all about you. He knows more than you know about yourself. And He loves you still. He sent His Son to die for you. And you see, this is hope for all those who find themselves in difficult circumstances in the present because of their past sin and compromise. Here is hope for people who married a non-Christian husband or wife even though they knew it was wrong. Or the person who's chosen a career based on all the wrong motivations, who has wasted a lifetime in pursuit of the wrong goals, that person can discover that God is sovereign even over those sinful choices and wasted opportunities. Perhaps He has brought us to where we are today so that we can serve Him in a unique way. If so, that doesn't make those wrong decisions and sinful actions right but it should cause us to give thanks to God that He is able to form beautiful pictures out of our smudged and stained efforts. Past failures, loved ones, do not write us out of a significant part in God's script for the future. God can still use you and still wants to use you for His glory. Lastly, even in your darkest moments, God is still there. The story is dark. I mean, this is not a, a PG fairy tale, Disney fairy tale. This is NC-17. And as I, I read through this, and you think, about, you think about Esther being ripped away from Mordecai. I don't know how he handled it emotionally, but I can tell you this. I, I can't imagine the other fathers who watched their daughters being ripped out of their homes to serve at the pleasure of a pompous, arrogant, pleasure-seeking pervert infuriating. And yet, as we read this story, we need to be reminded that even in the darkest moments, God was there. He's not forgotten His promise to His people. 
It's true for Esther and it's true for you and me. The darkest moment in history, as Jesus hung on the cross, he, he cried out in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we didn't know the end of the story, we would be inclined to see only the darkness and miss that this was actually, as, as Jesus hung there crying out, feeling God forsaken, it was actually, in the midst of the darkness, it was the most glorious moment in human history because the sin of the world was being poured out upon the Son of God so that He wouldn't be poured out on you and me. God's wrath was absorbed by the Son in our place. In the darkest moments of history, God is still there. His grace is still present. He is still at work. And for some here today, listen, it may be a dark time for you. You may have struggled simply to walk through these doors, struggle to pick up your Bible every day, struggle to pray or to cry out to God, struggle to get out of bed in the mornings, but you need to hear this. God is still present even when it doesn't feel like He is. He's there. He will never leave you or forsake you. Cry out to Him. Cling to Him. The story here tells us that God was working miraculously, providentially, even though Esther was in the darkest moments of her life. And this is the world we live in. It's filled with difficult choices and circumstances, but even in the darkness, God is still there. His grace is greater than the darkness. His power is still working. His love is still present. Our sins may be many, but His mercy is more. The darkness may be great, but His light is brighter still. God is faithful. He is there, even in the darkness of the world. We can rejoice in the light of the world, Jesus Christ.